You're listening to Revenue Vitals with Chris Walker. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to Revenue Vitals Live. I'm really excited to be here with you all today. I got a couple of announcements I wanted to go through before we get started, and then we'll just get into the uh, the just straight questions and answers that have been going so well since we've been doing this together um, that I just want to continue and have like an open Q&A. I feel like we're able to go deeper on topics. I feel like people get a lot more value. We're getting feedback on the recent podcast episodes of like when all of you participate in the content creation and are bringing the questions and the topics that that you want to know, tons of other people are want to know about them too. So we're going to continue to roll with that as we're finding it to be the most valuable for people. A um, couple of quick announcements. So we did uh, earlier this week release a, a lot of people have heard about the vault that we've been uh, building for the past 18 months. We've released a freemium offering. So you can actually go log into the product, use some of the templates, read some of the IP, um, be a part of those things. So if you feel free to do that, I think Kaylee's going to drop a link in right here for everyone to check it out if you'd like. Um, we also have some really cool news for those of you that know, we've been working on a uh, Salesforce managed package that basically automates a lot of like marketing data, um, looking at everything from first conversion all the way to revenue. It automates self-reported attribution, it tracks against revenue, it uses UTMs to measure demand capture, it can take inflow some things from your attribution software and use that in the data. So um, the key thing here is that it's native in Salesforce and it's addressing a lot of the data issues that we see that are native in Salesforce, where if you go and integrate a tool like Dream Data and integrate it and you don't have great Salesforce data, the tool you integrate with or the attribution tool you integrate with isn't going to work that well either. You need to have the infrastructure first. And so that was approved by Salesforce as of today. We'll be live in the Salesforce App Store soon and we're releasing a uh, private beta with five to 10 companies. So if you're interested in that, uh, Sydney can probably direct you to how to get in touch. We'll, over the next two months, be installing with somewhere between five and 10 total companies. Um, and then lastly, I'm just uh, overall super excited. It feels like event season is back in play. A lot of people were hitting me up for the B2B sales and marketing exchange conference that happened a couple of weeks ago. I wasn't able to make that one in Scottsdale, um, but do have South by Southwest coming up. I'm going to be meeting a lot of people there. So if you'll be there, feel free to reach out. We can meet up for coffee or something like that. And then I'll be speaking at the uh, spring, a, con a new conference put on by Winter that's happening at the beginning of May in Austin, Texas. And I'll also be speaking at SAS Stock, which is happening at the beginning of June in Austin, Texas. A cool, uh, a cool quote unquote advantage of me moving from Boston to Austin is that besides inbound, there's not a ton of marketing conferences that happen in Boston. There's a ton of them that happen here. So I get to uh, spend a lot more time with people in person, which I'm excited about this upcoming spring and summer. So with all that, you all could have spent this hour in any other way, but you decided to be here. So thanks for being here, working, uh, working with us to improve your own skills, but also help a lot of other people on the way. So thank you all for being here. And let's get into it. Well, quick plug. We've got plenty of questions that came in beforehand, so we'll get started with those. If you'd like to come on and ask your question directly with us live, just make sure you note that when you drop your question into the chat. Um, otherwise, if you'd prefer to ask questions anonymously, just shoot them to me in a DM and I'll be happy to do so. Let's go ahead and get started. Um, okay. We've got someone joining in from Australia that submitted this question in advance. Um, they said, we're trying to follow your approach by building community in a similar format like this. Um, and I need your, I need your advice on oh, how to get started for the Zoom meeting. It says, we've kicked off a few events now. There's only a handful that join each event. Where do you suggest we go from here? Do we just roll with it or should we make adjustments? 
So uh, you're going for the same strategy that we take here, which is like use an event to then create long form content for a podcast and then use the video content for downstream. And then as you start to get that going, a lot of people attend and you can end, end up spend, spinning a community out of that, uh, out of that move. Um, and so the first step that you can take is you need to have the events. You need to get some people there. I've talked to, in numerous lengths about the idea that just the numbers of attendees alone is not the indicator of success. Um, and so at the beginning, when we started Demand Gen Live more than three years ago, the first time 17 people showed up. And for the first probably six months, we never exceeded 50 people. Um, a couple of things that you can do to increase attendance in the short term, you can leverage external people that have existing personal brands and profiles and have them be a guest host, have them on so that they, and then they promote it and they start to attract a little bit of audience and you can start to siphon off of that. Um, Gatano Denardi and I partnered up on the beginning part and it was great for both of us. Um, cause we, we both had some level of established audience. We kind of like put them together and got a much bigger impact. So that's something that you could consider whether a partner or having guests on, and then you got to take a hard look at like, are the, the people that are on there, are they coming every week? Are they sharing it with other people? Are they sending you a message saying how valuable it was? Are they submitting additional questions? Like a big part of this is like, is the event actually valuable to the people that you want to be there? Um, and so those are the two places that I would look. Is there ways that we need to make this event more valuable for people? Maybe you do some research or a 15-minute call or something like that with people to understand how their experience was at the event, what would make them come back, things like that. We try and get feedback as much as possible from all of you in order to do that. So yeah, those are the those are the places where I would focus. Yeah. And the way the question was submitted, it seems like they're getting really hung up on the amount of people that are attending in person. So I think that's the big hang up is that you have to ignore the numbers and, and move forward with um, the feedback that you're receiving of the people that do attend. And the reason um, that you ignore the numbers is because when you make the realization that most people are going to want to consume the information asynchronously. And so there's 68, how many people? 75 now people on this live event. But when we go and put it out on a podcast, 40,000 people will listen to it. And when I break it up into seven different LinkedIn posts and post all those videos in aggregate, a million people will watch it. And so it's the, the event is a medium to create content. It's great. If more people come, it means it's a valuable event, but it is not, it's not the overall KPI. When you understand that the, the asynchronous dark social distribution is where you get all of the, a major, not all, but a majority of the, the overall business impact. And that's also how you're going to create a loop where you pick up more attendees to the events and more followers of the and subscribers of the podcast and things like that is when you when I started posting the links to the event in the videos of my demand gen live episodes that's when people saw okay this video is valuable they see the first comment they see a link to register for the event they register it now they have this event on their calendar every Tuesday and they can decide if they want to come or not we've got an an, um, an interesting question about YouTube uh specifically around your YouTube strategy. So um, Jake is curious to know more about what made you change our YouTube presence from a Refine Labs account over to a Chris Walker account. And then um, as a percentage, how successful is YouTube for our brand? Yeah. So uh, we, in, we invested quite significantly in the effort that we put forward on YouTube for 18 months or two years under the Refine Labs brand, taking my content and putting it there as well as other people in our company's content and all aggregating it onto one page. And then honestly, I was just having conversations with a couple of people that do YouTube 
And they were like, yeah, we did the company profile and now I've switched it to my personal profile and it's growing way faster and we're adding, you know, 10,000 subscribers a month this way. The core insight could be that people are more likely to follow a person than a brand. That's a, a worthwhile hypothesis. Um, but we decided to make this test and change. So we switched it from Refine Labs to mine. And over the past three to five months since we've done that, we our subscriber growth is significantly greater and stronger. We've also started to go all in on shorts, like YouTube's version of like a TikTok or a Reel. We're using um, that primarily on YouTube and it's working well for us. We don't get tons of views on videos. We don't have a lot of videos go viral, but we do pick up a lot of subscribers. And so overall, the change for us moving from a company page to a personal page so far, I think has been a, a good change and a positive, uh, positive direction for us. Um, so that's like the background and what we've seen so far and some of the drivers as to why we did it. Awesome. Okay. We've got so many questions. Let me try and keep up. Um, oh, there's also Jillian. a business impact one. Sorry about that. Let's get to that. Oh. Um, Go ahead. I would say that the, uh, like what, if you measure it on self-reported attribution or UTMs that like we do get people submitting saying they heard about us on YouTube. I do get people send me a message saying they followed me on LinkedIn because they saw me on YouTube or TikTok. Um, so the, it's not like a LinkedIn or a podcast for us, but that's not the stage that we're in for it right now. Like if YouTube plays out and becomes a big impact to drive customer acquisition for some of our lower cost offerings that were or software that we're developing in the future, that would be awesome. And if that times out where it starts to make a big impact in six to nine months, then that's awesome. Um, but the stage that we're at with this, we don't expect massive results. I would say we probably get one submission self-reported attribution uh, to YouTube a month right now. Um, but the overall level of effort at this point is matched with the business outcome. So it's not like we're like have way tons of people and tons of resources to the money going there while it's only generating that result. The idea is to do some things at a low cost, prove that it works and then continue to grow investment as results grow. That's the approach that we take. Brilliant. Okay. Joey, you've got a question in the chat. I'm going to unmute and see if you'd like to join us live. Yes, I'm here. First time we're here. I appreciate you doing this and I'm excited to be hey, coming. I'm really glad to have you here for the first time. Where are you from? Gainesville, Florida. Cool. Um, and what do you, what, where do you work or what do you do? So head of growth here for a very, very early startup. Um, we're an ad tech company that leveraging, um, AI curriculum and, and virtual characters. But essentially I know that there's been a, a lot of back and forth on the role of BDR and, and rethinking that, that whole process. And then, um, we're, we're bootstrap. And very, very in the beginning stages of building out a, a go to market. But I know in the past with previous podcasts, there's been mentions of ads not being a, a great fit for our particular stage because of not having a clear message to win. Um, I have leadership buy in on, on moving towards the, the Chris Walker playbook, so to speak, uh, mm -hmm. further down the line, but I'm, I'm, I'm getting, uh, pushback on moving away from that BDR motion and more towards the community building live events, strategic organic content on LinkedIn and other platforms. Mm -hmm. um, and I want to, I, I want to get your input on building a business case for moving away from a BDR motion. And I, I know so some of the other stuff you've mentioned is in network referrals as channels that we pursue one-to-one -one, uh, sales conversations at conferences, more for customer insights, more for 
just gathering what, what hits, what resonates so we can have that product marketing mindset of positioning, understanding our segments. Um, so we're, we're definitely in that phase and how, what market? So my question is, would you, what additional marketing led growth channels, tactics would you pursue at our very early stage where we haven't even hit 20 customers? And what would be your case against a BDR motion? Because it's right now it's do, do whatever works, uh, mm-hmm. growth at all costs and, uh, do, do things that won't scale down the line. Yeah. So I know there's a lot of context there. So yeah, that there's helps. a lot of context. There's a couple of things that go through my head and then I'm probably gonna have some follow-ups. Um, the first one is that I don't, uh, I don't think this is an either, or I don't think it's either we like do the BDRs or we do these types of marketing. It's just about having an appropriate balance for the business of the level of go to market experiments that you're running at this stage. So it just kind of sounds like, and I, Tell me if I'm misinterpreting. It kind of just sounds like you're all in on the BDRs and maybe you don't need to be all in. Is that sort of what you're saying? I want to move away from that. Um, but uh, we're, we're the leadership saying, hey, we need to do, we have a subset of early adopters that we need to hit mm-hmm. that meet certain segment criteria. Yep. Uh, we don't see how how building out our community on LinkedIn or live events is going to hit those early adopters, but mm-hmm. we want to do that. And that's a huge step forward for mm-hmm. moving. Eventually, once we've crossed the line of we've got our first customers, we've had customer validation, we've got some sort of clear messaging that we know that works. Yeah. Um, so I think my point still stands that it's not an either or. And the first thing that I would do is I would just look at the pure analytics on the BDRs. I did this at an early stage. We had 15 employees. I did this at an early stage company. We had uh, maybe it was 20 employees, and there was four BDRs, five AEs, a sales leader. So you got nine, 50% of the company and headcount is in sales. If you look at salary, it's probably even higher. Um, and we're going outbound with BDRs to sell a 25k ARR deal. No, sorry, $2,500 ARR deal. We're talking 200, 300 a month here. And so if you like your situation might not be the same, but it still applies of like, if you just run the cost of like customer acquisition cost payback periods, like there is no way that this can support an SDR AE motion at that ACV. Um, and so that's the analysis that I did. And then you look at conversion rates, you look at number of total opportunities created through this. Then you can look at the cost per qualified opportunity. You can project that into some idea of future forward customer acquisition costs. You can look at historical customer acquisition costs. Um, you can make calculations of like, how is this going? If we need to double revenue in 2024, what would it actually, what would be required to make that happen based on the historical data? Um, and you, that you should just look at objectively. You should look at it and maybe you'll find like, Hey, our ACV is high enough. We're selling at 50 K ARR deals. Like this can be supported. It's inefficient, but like overall, the business metrics and the tolerances that we have for customer acquisition costs and cost per opportunity are generally in line. You might find, hey, this is too high. We need to, I recommend that we shrink this team in half or, hey, this is totally ineffective, which I don't think will happen. But you might find, hey, this is totally ineffective. We should shut it down. Um, But even if in the shutdown situation, there needs to be like a crossover bridge. Like you need to be able to boots, like while you're running one thing, boot something else up new, show some forward progress and things, and then phase down something that's not working. Um, so that's the my general thinking. And then I think you had a question on tactics too, but let's start uh, let's start on like the analysis 
and yes. having multiple things run. So, so I have the analysis and, and leadership is in agreement. Yeah. The, the conversion rates, the, the sales qualified opportunities it leads into and, and, uh, revenue is, is not justifying it, but it's the, Hey, let's do things that we're not going to do later because we need our early adopters. Mm-hmm. So we need it to be targeted. We need to be personalized. We need to get over that hump and then let's go beyond that. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Uh, what, what your argument sort is? of. So is there argument that we like, we shouldn't do anything else right now and just do that? Yes. Or is the argument that we just need to do this right now, but maybe we could do other things too? Not other things too. Just this. Mm-hmm. Let's get our first customers. We need to have those conversations. We need to target mm-hmm. that specific uh, segment that we know has the problem, is actively trying to solve it, mm-hmm. is open to risk uh, on a new company. Yeah. So um, that would like that mandate from leadership would restrict you from like hosting a live event. Yes. Okay. Um, Because of the short term, because of the issue of we need all of our time spent getting those first customers. Yeah. Because they're thinking that's a long term. We're going to have to build that community. It's going to take six to nine months just to get some some leverage on, hey, we're, we're starting to bring more customers in because they see that we're driving their career advancement with our content and yeah. building that brand. Just the way that I see it of like you spending 25% of your time on that doesn't negatively impact every other thing that's happening. That's just the way that I see it. Um, okay. Like, so I like, I'm not going to be able to convince your leadership team of this, or maybe they can listen to it and they are, but I'm not sure that I am. Um, so like when it comes down to it, like you got to do your best, right? You got to be able to put together the analysis. You got to get aligned with executives, things that you've already done. You got to be able to make suggestions of other things that we could be doing too. Um, but ultimately, when it comes down to it, the leaders of the company uh, in your situation are going to be driving a lot of the decisions. And so, if you can't get them on board, then you're kind of a little bit um, you're kind of a little bit stuck, right? You can't go rogue and like try and like do some events. I guess what I would mm-hmm. I guess what I would uh, do is I would focus on. Um, I would focus on lower funnel initiatives that mirror some of the things that we do. So I would have like one of your early, like one of your early customers come on and do an event. I think I mentioned this last week and we've done it with some of our products with good success. Like have one of your early customers come on and then you, and then invite prospective customers, BDRs do outreach, invite prospective customers. Hey, Susie, C-level, you know, head of education at this company is going to be on talking about their experience with this thing. And then you interview them and it's sort of like, uh, it's just low. It's, it's, people are going to see it as more sales oriented or more short term, even though it doesn't have to be. Um, and I would focus on things like that at the beginning, um, customer, like, um, arming the BDRs with great content, customer stories, events that they can use in outreach. Um, that type of stuff is probably where I would, focus if you truly get blocked on like the full strategy and you can use some of those things as a, as a way into, to start to go to the direction that you want to go. Yeah, that's good. And any other tactics other than the the event interview strategy? I I know that the ads are out of the picture in your mind. What, what other channels? Um, Let's say, let's say no restrictions. Yeah. What I mean, like early on, like I would, 
I would do those events. I would put self-reported attribution on your website if you have any level of like website conversions just to see where they're coming from. Um, mm -hmm. And I would consider looking at like low funnel referral sources, G2, Captera, like I would just spend more time spend more time on organic or like low paid demand capture if you play in an existing category. Um, it seems like the um, the mindset of the executive team is very short term. So I'm just suggesting mm -hmm. doing do like almost building into it. Like BDRs basically demand capture, demand conversion, then do some marketing oriented demand capture, then start doing some demand creation and just sort of like building into it slowly rather than trying to go all the way to the end. And you can explain to them, hey, this is like, this is where we want to end up. But here's how we're going to get here, starting with the short term, then working on this, then working on this. And as we do it, we're going to drive more pipeline. We're going to make the BDRs more efficient. We're going to reach more prospective customers. We're going to create content for our website. Um, we're going to get into the motion of actually doing an event every week. We're going to figure out what we need to do. We need to figure out the editing. We can share this stuff on organic social through our company page or through our CEO's page. It just sort of helps you build into it a little bit more smoothly. Yeah, that's really good. I appreciate cool, that. Any, I any other so much thing? time on my questions. I love it, man. This is super valuable for everyone. Is there, were there any other tactics or things you were considering that you want my perspective on? When would you start the ads? Because early on, I, I started with ads and that was cut off. So what, would you say that range of 20 customers is a good range to say, yeah, we found product market fit. I know it's more subjective in terms of customer insights, but at what point would you start doing ads? When your sales team can reliably execute a sales process to a defined persona or company. So okay. that would mean like consistency in sales cycles, can, uh, decent amounts of win rates, consistency of message, consistency of pricing and offer. Um, like when those types, and then when those types of things are happening, then you just go into the sales process and you say, okay, what are we telling customers in the sales process? What are the things that are resonating the most? Where are the places that were differentiated? What case studies are like social proof are we pointing to then pull the stuff out that's proven to work in a sales process and then just run it at scale. Makes sense. But if you like, don't have, if you can't prove the right message manually through us and the right offer manually with a sales professional, then trying to deploy it like in like a large scale digital format, the odds that like people see it are high. Like people are going to see the ads, but the impact, the perceived impact is low from my perspective because it's not like if I'm ever going to like go forward with messaging, I test it in sales conversations first. So then I have a, a good sense of how a sample of people are going to be going to react to the message, what questions they have, what's not clear, what sticking points. Did I actually close the deal when I use that message or did I not? Um, those are like, there's chatter going around that like, um, marketers that have experience selling or have sold, um, tend to be better marketers. I don't think that's like a by and large like thing, but I, it gives you a huge advantage as a marketer to have effectively sold the product you're marketing. So that's something in bigger companies, probably not going to fly in smaller companies like yours. Maybe that's a way to get some experience and test some things out. Um, I still to this day am running sales processes at my company just to like as the market shifts and people's needs are changing, just have a pulse on 
what people need, where are the places that they're holding on to is the things that are most valuable. How would that then impact our future marketing, product development, things like that? Awesome. Thank you. Cool. Thanks for being here. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Beautiful. Austin, I'm coming to you next. So you can join us and ask a question live. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, I'm going to be headed to a, a couple trade shows in the next couple weeks. And I really want to use this time to kind of gather customer insights at scale to, I guess, kind of cross-reference it with our SRA data that we're getting um, and ultimately use it for uh, like a lead generation strategy. So just wanted your insights on like best practices to do that. And then even like maybe specific questions to ask. As yeah. Well. Yeah. Talk me through like I, the, I have a decent sense of the goal, but like help us all understand how you might see it play out in real life. Like what would, how would you actually do it? And like you mentioned cross-reference with SRA data, um, like what are you trying to find out and then what would be like a practical way to do it? Um, I think I'm really trying to figure out like where these people consume content because for the most part, the SRA data that we're getting is pretty much just like one word, like either podcast or website they saw us on. So I guess mm -hmm. trying to uncover how these people buy stuff ultimately um, because I feel like right now we're only kind of getting a snippet of mm -hmm. their process. Mm -hmm. Do you have a booth at the show or are you just walking it? Uh, we have a booth. Okay, yeah. cool. Um, this is literally something, a tactic that I use when the companies that I worked for did trade shows a lot in like 2013 to 2017. Um, you have the booth. You have an iPad or two, you have a survey that you want people to, fi that, to fill out and you incentivize them to fill out the survey when they stop in the booth by winning something. And then you get a hundred responses, you know, their job title, you know what they work for. You tell them you're not going to follow up for, this is not a sale. We're not going to follow up with sales for this. We're just trying to learn. You can, you know, and then you ask them the questions and then you, that's part of the CTA at the booth is like, Hey, we're offering this thing up for free. Would you be willing to take three minutes to fill out this survey? Um, and I got great, like I did these at a couple conferences and like you could see the dramatic differences just based on people's job titles. Like we were targeting optometrists and ophthalmologists. And while the two words sound the same, they're entirely different professions. But as a business at that time, we were relatively immature and we thought of them all as the same. And then the data between the two was just so dramatic on like what they most care about, where they, who they trust, what, uh, what channels they use to research that it materially impacted our product, our product roadmap mainly. Um, but it could also influence the marketing strategy. So I think that is probably the cleanest way to do it. It's basically like doing an online market research survey, but just using the, the booth as the targeting and acquisition strategy for people to fill it out. You probably only need like, 100 200 responses for it to be relevant from people at the right titles so yeah it uh it actually works out good too because we are a, a survey platform um so you can show off the product as well. yeah yeah like, so great. maybe stone two birds at once and uh and use the product that way to survey these customers yeah that's a hundred percent the direction i would go what what would you want to know like 
just a couple questions off the top of your head that would be kind of beneficial for you to craft this marketing strategy? Yeah. I mean, effectively what you're trying to understand is like, how do these people prefer to buy things like ours? Okay. Right. Like that's what I'm just re uh, repeating back what you told me. Like you're trying to okay. uncover how people buy stuff and then try and triangulate it with the other signals that you're getting, whether it's through software based attribution, qualitative market research, um, self-reported attribution data, things like that. Um, okay. so I would be asking things like, which of these sources do you use to like research and discover like new technology for your restaurant or restaurants? Like that would be a good one. And then give them a bunch of different options with like check marks. Um, you okay. can also do, I've done this before where you ask the first question blinded. So it's an open text box and you don't give them options. And then the next question is the, almost the same question, but you give them a bunch of options. So you get like the unaided response. Like if I don't give you any options, what do you say? And then you give them all the options and see what they say, which gives you a better like way to analyze it quantitatively later. I would be looking at, uh, like at like how do you prefer a salesperson to reach out? What steps in your buying process do you want to complete before talking to sales? Wh who are the top like people that influence your decisions about what technology to buy? People or sources? The, yeah, like, I really like that one. Like people in the industry that they might follow. Yeah. Um, that kind of help their buying decision. No, that's that's super insightful, especially since we sell to single unit mom and pop shops all the way up to Tim Hortons or one of those mm -hmm. bigger brands. And then a, a separate strategy that I've taken before, um, which is way more qualitative, is I when I when I'm in the booth, I just ask the people that are attending, what are the sessions that you're most excited about this week? And then I, whatever I hear patterns of the people that they want to hear and things like that. And then I attend those sessions. So I hear the same message that my customers are hearing. It gives me an opportunity to go over there afterwards and say, Hey, Rob, that was a great presentation on blah, blah, blah. You want to come on our podcast in a month and talk about it to a bunch of people or, Hey, maybe we can like collab. That was really interesting. Maybe we can collaborate on something. And then using that as like inroads to, to, uh, build relationships with the people that your customers trust. Okay. No, that's awesome. Super helpful. Thank you. Happy to help. Cool. Come back in a little while and let us know how it goes. That is a uh, like, um, I'm not, I'm not big on trade show booths, but if I did have a booth, those are some of the things that I would definitely do. No, it's uh it's all good stuff. And, uh, yeah, you were the one who got me to implement the SRA form in February was actually our first full month of data. Um, so slowly building a case for it to kind of shift the strategy let's hear how it goes like how's yeah. what have you learned so far um i would say lots of referrals and uh and word of mouth i think last time i shared my screen it was pretty well the same about halfway through february so lots of that and then surprisingly lots of podcasts that we're not associated with so huh. people just organically talking about us um and us not really kind of pushing them to do so. So I think the podcast channel is could be really good. Yeah, just whoever says podcast, maybe just go like trying to figure out a way to reach out to them and be like, hey, do you know which podcast these were? That becomes a really interesting like partnership advertising opportunity, being able to have your CEO speak on those ones or whoever is the evangelist at your company. 
Um, this is just like, it's, it's just crazy. You would have never known that podcasts or word of mouth were playing such a big role if you didn't ask this question. Yeah, just no, that's, uh, that's exactly it. You would never learn about how these people are buying and then just being able to scale that I think is just going to be invaluable. Um, yeah. so I'm really excited to try to inject some more like activities in that podcast space to see how it can benefit us rather than just kind of letting it organically happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's so. like the perfect use case for SRA. We do it for a month. What are people saying? Go do more of the things that people are saying, like figure out how to make yeah. those things work better. It's really not complicated. Um, no, that's, yeah. that's exactly it. So no, I appreciate it. And uh, super interested in checking out this freemium version of, uh, of the vault. So yeah, man, get in there. I think Sydney dropped the link. Also, do you all use Salesforce? No, sadly, we use HubSpot. Oh, got it. HubSpot's a great product, too. Yeah, so just waiting for you to to make it available on HubSpot. All right, yeah, we're going through technical feasibility right now, but it has been highly requested, so we're working on it. Good stuff. Right now, I'll just have to deal with my, uh, my boring old spreadsheet. <laughs> yeah. So. All right, thanks for being here, man. Great, uh, great talk. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Great to see you again. I think the only other thing, too, I might add to that is if you know some of your customers are going to be here, you said this statement about you sell from mom and pop shops all the way up to Tim Hortons, which I think is a gas station chain in Canada, maybe, but I could be totally <laughs> wrong. Um, like <laughs> I'd be interested to see if you could actually grab some time with a couple of those people from different verticals, different sizes, drastically you know, different sectors or industries that you're selling into and actually grab 20 minutes, grab a coffee, do a coffee date, walk and talk, et cetera. So you can go deeper than some of the insights that you'll get from the feedback at scale, just to see if you can identify any trends in industries that you're selling into company sizes that you're selling into. Maybe you've got slight differences in personas because of some of those, because your, your TAM seems pretty broad. Um, you know, a 20 minute walk and talk could actually get you some interesting qualitative data too. Yeah, that's that's super helpful because actually for one of the trade shows, I'm going to stay an extra couple days. And my plan was to kind of set it up for like sales meetings since I'm on the sales side. But I think using it to kind of get more qualitative insights, like you just mentioned, I never really thought about it for that approach. Um, yeah, since being in sales, you're always thinking sales first. <laughs> Yeah, oh, I, I forget you're a sales guy because I think I was fascinated to learn that the first time you joined the call. But yeah, I yeah. tried like, hey, a coffee does wonders. These people are going to be tired. Mm -hmm. Coffee could go a long way. Love See if that. you yeah. could grab 20 minutes of time with them and go a little bit deeper. Yeah, well, I guess a uh, good thing Tim Hortons is a coffee chain. So we'll <laughs> uh, just go there. <laughs> nice. Beautiful. Thanks for joining us again, Austin. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Kathy, I think you're next in the queue. Let me ask you to unmute and join us live. Hi, Chris. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for having me. Um, Chris, I just started a job full-time a few weeks ago at a company where I used to work part-time, and I'm following the Chris Walker playbook, made a list of the top 10 clients, and I'm asking them my questions, and I'm trying to line up the interviews. Mm -hmm. already did a couple, and they're going great. Thank you. Uh, but the account managers are giving me a little bit of a hard time and mm -hmm. are being protective and don't want me to necessarily get in touch with these people directly. And I'm wondering if you have any advice for me on how I can overcome that. Yeah, this is something that comes up anytime you try and do this, especially as you keep going up in the customer tier. And now you're at like the top 10 customers, people like account management specifically, very protective over who's 
interacting with those accounts. And rightfully so. It's their job to retain that account. They want to be able to control all the communications. I understand both sides. And I've run into this before. So there's a couple of options. One is finding an account, one account manager that just like supports you in this and then just trying to work with a subset of their accounts. You might get slightly biased data because the account manager could play a big role in what customers think. So it could bias the sample of the data. Um, you can try and uh, have your like mark, whoever the marketing leader is talk with the head of account management or head of sales or whoever manages that department about this initiative and what you're trying to do and then see how you can work together to get that done. Um, you could also just, instead of having the top, top 10 customers, you could sort of slide the scale down to like the top 25% or, you know, in that top percentile so that it's not just like the biggest, most important accounts and you could slide the scale a little bit down. Um, those are, those are some like workarounds there. None of them are ideal. Ideal is that people in the company that are account managers trust the credibility and uh, intuition of people that are doing this type of work in marketing. And the company's created a culture where this is invited that many people touch the customer for different reasons. Um, that's the ideal, but it's not, doesn't play out like that in many organizations. So there's like workarounds that you could do. Um, another alternative is to, get what you can out of the qualitative, but then use uh, like large scale quantitative instead. So use like a, a survey or something like that. So you don't have to actually have the meeting, which typically gets received a lot better. It doesn't create as many blockers. Um, when you do a survey, you should expect one to 2% of people respond. So you need to have a decent sized list of who you're, who you want to fill it out to have a relevant amount of volume or sample to go off of. But like, those are some of the, the options that you could take. That's really helpful. So I'm the marketing leader. Uh, so okay. I'm trying to have this discussion and I have a meeting with uh, one of the account managers this Thursday, which he put on my calendar. But anyway, I like the idea of not having necessarily to go to the top 10, but maybe go down to a few of the others because I actually have, I have a point of contact with some of those. And, mm -hmm. and so I just wanted to make sure that you thought that was an okay strategy. It doesn't necessarily have to be the top 10, but it's no, not like No, I mean, you do. it's definitely not. It's, I, it's ideal if you're talking to your most happy customers and your least happy, but any customer insight across the entire set is valuable as long as you know where that customer fits in the spectrum. Because you'll hear different Question things. From yeah, keep going. I guess one of the uh, arguments is that some of these clients weren't necessarily happy with us. And so mm -hmm. I don't want to put myself in a situation where I'm getting rich through the coals, like I'm not customer success, right? But on the other hand, if that's if they're not happy, yeah. shouldn't marketing hear that? It's a it's about redefining what top ten customer means. Hmm. Hmm. Top okay, 10 what do you mean? Like uh I don't think they how can they be a top ten customer in terms of the happiest customers if they're not happy with you right now? Um it's like the the way your company's probably defining it as the most valuable or the company that pays us the most right now. Um, but I would look at it different based on the like customer success and, and sentiment of the account that they are the happiest, most successful customer. And those people may not pay you the most right now. 
And so that's what you're trying to get. You're, you're, you're not trying to get the people that pay you the most and the people that pay you the least. You're trying to get the people that are the happiest and the people that are the least happy. So should I then go ahead and try and interview those people who are not so happy with us and categorize them as, hey, you know, this is from the least happy people. This is what they're saying. Um, if that's something that you think that you can pull off in your company, um, like I've okay. done, I kind of like, I don't know, maybe it was like a different time or I was just like a little bit more confident, but I would just like go rogue on this stuff. Like mm. our, our sales reps were, I was in the meeting with our sales rep in San Diego. The person is like interested in buying. And then I like tr track the sales process through and I see it get moves to close loss like six months later. And I already had met the main point of contact. And so I just call her up and say, Hey, I'm, you know, Chris Walker. We met a little while ago. I'm like trying to understand a little bit more when we like have deals that don't win. Like, I'm not trying to change your mind here. We're just trying to learn so we can deliver a better experience next time. Like, why did, why uh, did you decide not to move forward with this? And the lady comes back and says, cause we're in a three-year contract with your competitor. We would have never, we were never going to buy from you. And like, that's great. Like it's great insight to have. And like, I'm not asking for permission to just make a call to somebody and figure that out. Now that is risky recommendation, right? So like, I'm not telling you to do that specifically, but like those, those are some of the things that I would do. And I would, so I would just like call them up, um, especially in like a win loss scenario. Cause it just gets received really well. I like made up my title and was like, I'm the director of customer experience and trying to like figure this out. Um, so there's a lot, I mean, to broaden it up, there's a lot of avenues to collect customer insights. And so if you're getting blocked in one avenue, like you, you have to decide, is it worth it to like, is this the hill I'm going to die on to go and talk to our 10 least happy customers? Because that's what Chris Walker told me to do. Or can you, or can we pivot? And I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to talk to the customers that I have available that account management's going to let me talk to. And then I'm going to go out and talk to the, the five most influential people and see what they think about this market. And then I'm going to go talk to a bunch of people that are not our customers and figure that like understand that perspective. So um, perhaps it's just like not necessarily taking my recommendations 100%, but being able to mold them to the situation that you have. You know what? I love that. And actually, I've been interviewing others, you know, so people in sort of tangential areas who are sort of market influencers for my YouTube channel. So I love that idea. Thank you so much. I've taken enough of your time. Thank you so much. Totally. Yeah. Happy to go back and forth. And then at some point, I would consider a like quantitative market research survey. If you have a trade show coming up, you can do what we, we talked about with Austin. Um, if you don't, then I would look at like you either using your own database, although the sample might be biased or like using like a contact database to get a relevant sample. Um, and then doing some level of a market research survey too about like how people, and that would be like true market research. Like which of these brands do you know? Which is the first brand that comes to mind when you think about X category? The ones that you heard about, where'd you discover those brands? Like which of these products do you, do you use? Why don't you use this product? Like uh, there's a really interesting sort of like top level market overview that I think is great for a quantitative survey if and when you have like the resources and time to do it. Love it. Thank you so much. Thanks for hopping on with us, Kathy. Let's uh, let's bring David on next in the queue. We've got David and one other that would like to go live if we can squeeze in two more. Okay. Can you hear me now? You're in. All right. Hey, Chris, how are you doing? Um, doing awesome. I, I guess... It <laughs> You're missing the, the New England summer that we're having up here right now. I was just there this weekend. It was 
it was snowing. <laughs> the only snow we've had. So, my question, I guess, is perhaps it's not specifically from me, but one that might be interesting to a lot of um, listeners. What when you think about the, your clients and the things you've been doing in the last three to six months um, on their behalf in demand generation type of activities. Do you notice that you're tending or your, 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 your teams are tending to do more of something now than they used to do before, maybe a year or two ago, or less of something now compared to a year or two ago? I, what, what kind of shifts have you noticed with your clients in what you're operationalizing, what you're doing with them? Um, and then if you are noticing any changes, what might be some of the things that are kind of underlying why you're making those um, changes. Yeah, I'm writing down some notes here so I can cover a couple of the trends that I'm seeing. So um, this isn't necessarily like a tactical thing, but like we're noticing that a lot of companies are becoming a lot more aware of the gaps in their data so that they can make good decisions. So whether that's self-reported attribution or being able to report in Salesforce appropriately, um, like a lot of companies are recognizing now that there's pressure put, like, is this actually working? We're spending money in it. We're going to cut it if, like, if we can't show that it's doing anything. That magically, a lot of marketing teams now say our data is not where it needs to be so that we can operate and make good decisions, which no, when things are going good, like nobody's thinking about that. There was companies that I interacted with that spent more than a half a million dollars a month on Google ads and didn't even have UTM set up had no idea whether they could not track at all in their CRM connected to revenue, whether or not the ads made any revenue impact. And they spent $500,000 a month, 18 months ago. That stuff's not happening anymore. Overall, advertising budgets are de decreasing. Um, a lot of that was because it was inflated. Money was cheap and free. And so companies could spend 300000 to millions of dollars a month and not scrutinize the expense that much. It was just blended into their overall growth and they accepted high cost of acquisition. And so they didn't really challenge the effectiveness as much. Now that, that effectiveness is being challenged and what's happening is that companies are moving to spend an appropriate amount on advertising, the same amounts that I've been recommending companies use since 2019. I, companies would come in and say, hey, we spend $300,000 a month on Google ads. And I would tell them, you should, probably should really be spending somewhere between twenty five and 50000 a month on Google ads. But you don't want to hear that from me. So we're just going to keep spending your three hundred. So advertising budgets are being compressed. It's pushing out experimental channels. So people are like way more focused on like things that either have direct attribution or have proved, already proven success. And some experiments are being cut. Like when you do have economic pressure, you have to make choices on what you do and what you don't do. So some experiments are being uh, cut. Facebook and Instagram, uh, meta generally, platform advertising investments are going way down, mostly driven, I, I believe, through the, the like longstanding impact of iOS 14 and the lack of attribution, in addition to just the perception from B2B companies about how you can reach people and make an impact on that channel. And you'd expect that like companies in these times, at least I would expect the companies in these times would be focused a lot more on like quote unquote organic uh, growth strategies, like podcast events, a lot of the things that I talk about doing here, but given sort of like the perception that it takes a long time to impact results and the like 
higher difficulty to attribute, especially with touchpoint-based digital attribution, is actually pushing people away from those things. It's, so it's like crazy. They would probably work the best for your business at this very time right now and deliver customers at a significantly lower customer acquisition cost and set you up for long-term success with something that could be like a competitive advantage. But given the constraints that are in the market right now, it actually pushes them away from some of those things, which I find interesting. So like, yeah, a shift, more, more budget and focus going to demand uh, capture over demand creation as well. It's not something that I agree with, but it's something that's happening. Okay. So that's not unexpected when there are, you know, times are tight. We, we look at the budget more carefully. We, we, we kind of retreat back to what we think is safe. Yes. Right. So with your clients, are you finding that there are particularly, uh, or, or some, some opportunities in different media or different, um, tactics or different ways of communicating? Um, some kind of, um, I guess, exceptions <laughs> um, yeah. where, where, where people are kind of, well, we're still able to do this and we're seeing for our B2B business, this particular place is really actually taking off right now. Just just kind of curious if, if some of those are happening among your customer mm-hmm. base. It's kind of all the same old stuff. Um, okay. Like those, those are the things that are taking off and like some of our customers do them, some of them don't. But when you look at the market broadly, like my perception is that like what I gave you was not necessarily my perception of what our customers are doing, but like what I'm observing happening across the entire market. Things that we see that like companies are having success with, we continue to see positive outcomes with, uh, with Reddit advertising, like really strong outcomes targeting against topics and th- like specific threads that have deep relevance to what you're doing. That's one like this podcast events, community, organic social, like the overall dark social play, like companies that do it, get dividends from it. Companies that don't, don't. Um, but the, that's like a really effective thing. And a lot of, uh, it's crazy. Like um, in 2019, 2020, I would talk about this idea of like building the organizational muscle so that when something happens, you have the muscle and you know what to do. Yes. Um, and then the time, you probably remember that from Demand Gen Live. And then like from 2019, 2020, 2021, even into early 2022, nobody was focused on building new muscles. And then stuff kind of stuff kind of falls off. There's more pressure economically. Sales cycles are slowing down. Win rates are declining. And if they had just spent the last the past 18 months building the muscle of having an event, having a podcast, having a presence with their executives on social that right now they would know what to do and they would go harder at it. But since they didn't do that, it's a lot harder to start it right now. So the people that did it, I think are capitalizing and getting dividends and the ones that didn't, I think are going to continue not to do it. And then there's just like, for, for most audiences, there's just such a compelling reason to use LinkedIn advertising in some, some way, text ads, feed ads, videos, carousels, like, I recommend mostly feed, but text ads are interesting too, just because of the ability to target and the amount of attention that's there and the mindset that people are on when they're on the platform. Um, And so that I think is, and um, because advertising budgets are declining, the cost of LinkedIn ads is declining. So it's, I don't have exact statistics here. Maybe we'll publish some on these trends, but like, I remember when, when I was doing some of this stuff in 2020, 2021 that we'd be paying 60 to 80 dollars cpm and if we use certain strategies we'd be at 
40. And now like a lot of, a lot you can run with like 20 to $40 CPMs, advertising costs effectively being cut, uh, somewhere between 50, you know, 25 and 50%. So that creates, um, you just get more, the advertising is less expensive. You get more for your, right. more bang for your buck. Cool. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. Great question, David. Appreciate you being here all the time. All right. We've got one more in the queue. Let me find you in the chat and ask you to join us live. Welcome. Hey. Hi, Chris. Uh, hi, Katie. Uh, Sydney and I don't know, a whole bunch of folks. I kind of know all of you now. <laughs> so, awesome um, for you to be here. Thanks so much. First of all, Chris, I heard you in August 2020 on my trip to Santa Barbara. I was staying at the Four Seasons there. And by mistake or something, I sort of switched on my, um, switched on the Apple podcasts and I somehow found you. And I have the most fondest memories about you because that drive is one of the most beautiful drives in the world. And uh, Four Seasons Bar Santa Barbara is basically has Spanish colonial villas. And I remember my mind was blown by the things you're talking because this is, those were the things I was hearing and seeing in my job as they were happening. And I was like, you know, who is this dude? How does he, does he work with me? Yeah. <laughs> and since then, um, you know, all the things in virtual events, all the things about this thing you're saying that, um, it's not that, uh, in-person events are happening and all of that, but, but really that people are stressed out. So therefore they want more out of digital experiences because, because they can't be physically available on those places. So all of that resonated so much with me. And since then I've been following you and, and I sort of attend your sort of events and all of that. So today I have uh, a personal question essentially. So I have seven years of uh, luxury marketing experience and seven years of B2B marketing experience. And I came to the U.S. as, as a grad student and then kind of transitioned from B2C marketing and luxury space to B2B marketing. Today, I am somewhat at a crossroads where I'm kind of thinking that um, there are things of my past life which were so good. And there are things in the current life which I like. And um, so I was kind of thinking that what I want to achieve out of this um, commentary from you is basically thoughts on how do I create some form of a personal advisory board? So that I can sort of think through what do I want to do next in my life, uh, as far as my career goes. Um, second is that, you know, how do you really develop a speaking profile? Like, how do you plan through that? How do you think through that? Uh, the third one I have is that how do you then plan your video content? So it could be like, Hey, the way you do sometimes in the morning, I wake up, I'm in, uh, uh, Palo Alto. So you know, at 6 a.m. in the morning, which is your 9 a.m. The first thing I would see is that I wake up at six and I usually uh, switch on my phone at 620 or something. The first video I see on Monday is yours, basically. That's how good your programming is that. And that's, that's how I'm connected to you so well. It's because week after week, the first video I see on LinkedIn is yours. And, um, and lastly, uh, I want to, I want to be not, no, I don't want to be in a conflict with my company as I build out all of these things. Uh, because, um, I work as a director of product marketing and a lot of this stuff I will do would be in, uh, parallel to what we are doing in the company as well, the B2C side. So somewhat being thoughtful because I feel that people as they're building out personal brands. So I think that some of they're sharing too much content and they, it comes across as, as they're too much on the, on the social network and too less, too less on work. Yep. Some <laughs> so companies that have piece. that perception. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a real perception because you open up the feed 
you see two, three times getting posted. So people have wondered that, hey, and it's it's a kind of a bias which nobody will talk about, mm-hmm. but it actually exists in they don't think it's mind. work, right? Like, um, a lot of people, like, don't, like, still don't realize that, like, when I spend 30 minutes a day on LinkedIn, that, like, it's super valuable work, right? right. They think that you're just, like, on a social network, like, just playing around, you know what I mean? Right. Like, um, so, and, yeah, it's real work if it has like legs to create some level of awareness or business impact. A lot of people are building their personal brand. They sell to CTOs and they're building their personal brand around sales. They're not really helping the company out except for like broad scale potential awareness, which is still fine. And as a executive of a company, like I have no issue with someone at my company building a personal brand around whatever they're passionate about. Like I did it. It worked for me. Why would I tell someone else they can't do it? Right. But that's not how, that's not how every company views it. And I've worked at ones where it's the polar opposite, where you they tell you distinctly not to do it if you do it. So there's a careful balance in understanding the the culture of your company and with a sort of like where you have to play around so that you don't set off any alarms, so to speak. Let's talk about the uh, the first one. So like I don't have a, a personal advisory board. I think it's an interesting idea. And for some people, I think it would could really work. Um you're welcome to come here and I'm ha- happy to help you every once in a while. So I'm happy to do that if you want. Um, there are also a lot of like groups out there that mm-hmm. some people call it, I don't love the term mastermind, but there's like groups out there where people that are smart, that someone that's already done it and you can join, you can like get consulting or coaching. Uh, I've done mm-hmm. that for something specifically more on like my internal mindset. And so I had a coach on like mindset and planning and thinking how you like training your brain on how to see things positively, et cetera, like, like, like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I spent like 300 bucks a month for it for 18 months and it was a super great investment in myself. So like there's things that you can look at, uh, like that, um, that are paid. Um, if some, if you know someone that's willing to help you for free, then feel free to take advantage of that. But I think the, uh, like one of the take homes I had in that coach, uh, coaching that I did is that like a lot of the answers are already in you. So it's more about figuring out how do I get clear on the things that I want. Right. I use I use journaling to do that every day. It works really well for mm-hmm. me. Um, and so maybe there's like you you probably already know, but you just need to find a process that you can get it out of your right. head and then synthesize it. Yeah, I think I have a fair bit of clarity. Um, I'm a planner by style, so um, and also I hate busy work on people. So just for the heck of it. Uh, my team, which I manage, I tell them, I don't want you to do busy work. I want you to do important work. So it's because eventually everything, people are able to distinguish between what is task because eventually everything is a task. Like this call right now is a task to some extent. So this difference between outcome versus what are tasks. So I think I have clarity on that. And it took me like 14, 15 years of work life to figure out the differences. So, um, so, so that way I'm aligned in those things. And I also journal, I have, uh, I use notion to sort of put together my thoughts. And for a lot of things, right, um, like I would read uh, from State of Industry, I would read the Magic Quadrants and all of that, even if the newer ones. So I have a very strong understanding of what is a POV versus, say, just an opinion, those kind of things. So I, mm-hmm. I, I have somewhat of a clarity in terms of, hey, what the uh, market needs. Uh, cool. So um, so from that sense, what I don't know is um, how do you put all of that together in a sizable, let's say you put on a two-month goal or something, hey, speaking profile, um, yeah, let's all go of this, through that now. Sort of put together. Yeah, we're uh, we're a little over, and I just want to be conscious of my next meeting, so I'll co- sort <laughs> of like run run through this. But I think we'll cover most of it. Um, like the 
the path to like the speaking profile, in my opinion, other people do it differently, but this is what I've done is one figure out things that are super valuable to people that not a lot of people know have AKA like have something important to say. Number two, share it in places to make people aware that you know, things that are valuable that make an impact for them. Step three, get invited by people that see that stuff that align with it. That think that you're smart to speak Mm -hmm. about it at a company, at an event for free, do consulting, like whatever, but that like at the three simple steps, know something that's valuable to people that not a lot of other people know, share the information with people so that they know that you know it and then wait for inbound invites. Like other people will like write a book and then hire an agent and get like, go and get the Amazon bestseller, play that little Mm -hmm. like hack game to get the bestseller. Ever noticed that every single book published is like a New York times bestseller people hack it and they like to put charge, give away the book for free to hit a certain number of copies in the first couple of days. Um, and then you can get a speak, you can do speaking that way. It's just not my style. Um, and then the video con like the video content is almost the prerequisite to the speaking profile, right? Like that's the video content is step two. And then the speaking profile becomes step three. Um, that also allows you like this, what I'm doing right here is practice every day. I practice every week, right? So that when I go up and I do a talk in front of 200 people live at an event this summer, that I know what I'm talking about. I'm confident Mm -hmm. to speak to an audience. I can think on my feet. I don't need notes. I don't need a slide deck. Um, I can like be engaging and know that Pete, like what I'm saying, people think is valuable. I can dial in what topics I'm going to talk about there. Um, so it's almost like the digital content is practice for mm-hmm. practice and a prerequisite for the in-person. That's how I would look at it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cool. Sorry to kind of jump off, but I do need to uh, run to the next. I appreciate you being here. The Santa Barbara story, I really appreciate it. And I'm happy to hear that uh, the content and the point of view had such a meaningful impact on your career. So thanks for sharing that. Um, and then just to close out everyone, I love this discussion. We had a couple of questions at the beginning that weren't, but then we had like four or five amazing back and forth to- on a bunch of different topics that people find valuable um, really appreciate you all being here every week. Really appreciate the people that came on live to um, share some of the things that are going on in their life or their business and help a lot of other people. So we're going to keep doing this. Really appreciate y'all being here. Hope you have a great rest of your week. We'll see you on the next one.